If you would please just join me right now as we uh, open in a word of prayer. Oh, uh, Eric, are we recording? Okay. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this opportunity to come into this place, to come into Your house, to worship among Your sons and daughters, and to give You glory and thanks for all that You've done in our, in our lives, Father. We ask that You would open us up in this study, that You would give us ears that would be open and attentive and receptive to Your Word. These aren't my words. These aren't my thoughts. These are the things that You've taught us so that we might have a better understanding, that we might be edified and built up and encouraged through Your Word as we go through this study about who You are. Please bless us with this knowledge, Father. Open it up to us. Allow us to apply it to our hearts, to our lives, so that we might build up each other and we might carry Your good Word, Your Gospel, out into the world and help save the lost. We ask all this in the name of Your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. God is good. I say that all the time. I usually say it in response to issues or unknown or unforeseeable consequences that I'm dealing with. Yes, I got hurt today, but God is good. Yes, I'm facing this trial or that one, but God is good. Yes, I don't know what the future holds for me, but God is good. Maybe I say it too much. There are days when it's a really tough thing to say, but I say it because no matter what happens to me and what ha- no matter what I happen to know or not know, I don't ever want to forget the fact that God is good. I don't want to agonize over things in my life, which I do from time to time, but I never want to lose sight that all things are Sorry, that all things are going to bring about God's good purpose and all things will have their perfect end in Jesus Christ. John Lennon once wrote, God is a concept by which we measure our pain. That's incorrect. God is a being so full and complete that there is nothing conceptual about Him. He is real and He is good. This, our ongoing study of systematic theology, has always had four primary intentions. It's to help us understand who God is. It's to help us understand more about who we are. It's to help us understand more about what the gospel is and how we can apply it to our lives. And it's to help us understand God's good and holy book because this book was written so that we might understand those first three things all the more. All of those things are connected. The more we understand about God, the more we understand about who we are in God's sight, which in turn also gives us even more insight into the nature, purpose, and application of the gospel. We learn about God to understand ourselves. We learn about ourselves to understand God. And once we have a right spiritual understanding of both of those things, the gospel will then make sense, it will affect our conscience, and we will respond and apply it to our lives. Anthony Hockamer wrote this, It is therefore important for us to have a right understanding of man. As we try to arrive at a proper Christian understanding, we should keep in mind such questions as these. Are there still remnants of non-Christian anthropology in our thinking about man? How does our view of, human, of the human person help us to better understand God? 
E.g., does the truth that man has been made in the image of God teach us something about God as well as something about man? In our study today on the moral attributes of God, we seek to have these questions in mind. We seek to understand who God is as a moral being so that we might better understand who we are as moral creatures which in turn gives us a right understanding of God, and then the gospel can be applied. It's an important subject. God created us to reflect his moral character. Most of the gospel literature that we hand out during evangelism is designed to ask those we meet to ponder their morality in light of God's holiness, to consider their goodness and what ultimate fate they might face in light of it. So we begin with the question, what is morality? Morality is a standard. I define it as a set of definitions that we can apply to any person regarding their activities, thoughts, systems, or concepts in order to distinguish whether they are good or evil, right or wrong, positive or negative. When we look at the world's definitions, we see that the world defines morality in popular culture and education in these ways. Morality or moral principles are principles of right and wrong in conduct or ethics. Morality is the standard of society used to decide what is right or wrong behavior. Morality is the character of being in accord with the principles or standards of right conduct, right con- uh, sometimes specifically virtue and sexual conduct. Morality is a system or collection of ideas of right and wrong conduct. The Stanford Encyclopedia has an extensive entry on the topic of morality. It can be used either descriptively to refer to certain codes of conduct put forth by a society or a group, such as a religion, or accepted by an individual for her own behavior, or normatively to refer to a code of conduct that given specified conditions would be put forward by all rational people. Now how the Bible defines morality when we look at that as our standard of what's good or bad, we are in fact doing these very things. We're asking the Bible to define what is good or evil, right or wrong, positive or negative. And the Bible makes no apologies about doing just that. In Deuteronomy 32, verses 3 through 4, it reads, For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. James 1.17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Galatians 5 verse 19, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things of these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, fruitfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things, There is no law. 
As we can see from these verses, the Bible has no problem giving us a clear definition for which things are good or evil or right or wrong. And the Bible makes it plain that the one who determines where they fall within that standard, essentially the source of that very standard itself is God himself and him alone. I also want to stress the significance of the word attribute. These are not parts of the whole. These are not details about God. Anything that we would call an attribute of God, any quality that we would attribute to him, applies to the entire being of God. Think about it this way. If you were going to buy a car, there are many details you'll find about the car. It might be a blue car. It might be a fast car. It might have cup holders. It might get so-and-so miles to gallon. But we go through rigorous testing to make sure that that car is safe. Safety is an attribute that must be describing the entirety of the car or they won't allow it on the road. Its tires must be safe. Its, its structure must be safe. The seatbelts must attain safety for the passengers and for the people who drive it. The entire car must be safe or it will not pass inspection. Same thing with a toy. Maybe you get a toy for a child and you inspect the box to see if there are any choking part hazards or if the packaging contains suffocation hazards. We need to make sure that the toys that we buy for our children are safe, right? We have age descriptions to make sure that you're buying the appropriate toy for the appropriate child because it has to be the safe toy for that child. So when we say that God is good, we understand that the entire being of God is good. There is no part of his being or person or essence that would fall short of that attribute. And an important word that I'd like us to understand when we think of God's attributes is the word manifold. It's a word which means many or various. It can also mean comprehending or uniting various features. God is manifold in his attributes and his qualities. He isn't half goodness and half holiness. He's not 30% patience, 20% wrath. God is 100% fully holy. He is 100% fully good. Now you might think that's a little odd, especially when we deal with something like wrath. Is God 100% wrath? That's not exactly how we mean it, but we do understand that God and his wrath is informed and it stems out of his love and his holiness. How can God be all mercy? What is he being merciful for if it's not being patient and holding off his steadfast wrath against those that have have done injustice? What is he being patient towards? What is he being merciful for? Who is he showing grace to if he doesn't have a just and holy wrath that that we can attribute to him? Next, I would ask, um, why do we distinguish God's moral attributes from his other attributes? I would say that we do this because these are the attributes that directly relate to the gospel itself. On the day of judgment, Jesus will say to some, depart from me, you evildoers, you sinners, those who fall short of God's moral law, his holy standard for good and evil. We read in Romans 4 that Abraham believed God and that faith was credited to him 
as righteousness. They are all informed by his nature and his character. Each attribute informs the other, and each one stems off one another. So technically, all of his attributes have a moral quality. But as I said, these are the attributes that directly relate to the gospel and salvation. So we'll look at those that Grudem lists in his book, which are goodness, love, holiness, righteousness, jealousy, and wrath. And before we do that, I would simply ask you to consider what we read in the London Baptist Confession where it talks about God and think about how many of his perfect moral attributes you hear. The Lord our God is one. The one living and true God, he is self-existent and infinite in being and perfection. His essence cannot be understood by anyone but him. He is a perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible and has no body parts or changeable emotions. He alone has immortality, dwelling in light that no one can approach. He is unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way infinite, absolutely holy, perfectly wise, wholly free, completely absolute. He works all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable and completely righteous will for his own glory. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, and patient. He overflows with goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He rewards those who seek him diligently. At the same time, he is perfectly just and terrifying in his judgments. He hates all sin and will certainly not clear the guilty. Do I have any questions at this point? I know I'm throwing a lot at you. Yes, Paul. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. One second. Uh, Tony, can you get him, please? Thank you. I didn't teach any of this course, but uh, what you said earlier just resonated with me uh, when you spoke about uh, the... uh, all his attributes is who he is. It's not part this, part that, part that. I, I thought that was so wonderful that uh, when you think of his attributes, he's that way the whole way through. I, I, it just blessed me to, to, to get that understanding uh, that he isn't part this, part that, but he is, in other words, whatever attribute, it's a whole way through. Amen. I just was blessed by that. Anyone else? No? Okay. That was your one shot. So now we'll get into the attributes themselves. The first one we look at is goodness. Wayne Grudem defines goodness this way. The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. I would understand that phrase final standard to mean that the the buck stops with God's judgment. If God determines that something is good, then it is as he declares. But if all things must meet with his approval, then he is, in fact, the only standard of good. Herman Bavnik said, God and God alone is man's highest good. Jesus said in Mark 10, no one is good but one that is God. He is the only source of good. We also should understand that since God is good, and has always been good, even before his creative work, that God was self-satisfied with his own goodness as he existed eternally in the holy union of the triune Godhead of Father, Son, and Spirit. God needs no other approval but his own. 
though we fully acknowledge that he is indeed worthy of all approval and honor and glory. John 17, 5, Jesus said, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Biblically speaking, the goodness of God cannot be understated. All throughout the God-breathed scriptures, we see God declaring his own goodness to us. This is just a small sample of where it talks about it. In 1 Chronicles 16, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Ezra 3.11, They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Psalm 25.8, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. Psalm 23.6, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 31.19, How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. And finally, Psalm 145.9, The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all His works. There are two other attributes that we could say fall into this category of His goodness. Two other attributes which God often talks about in light of His goodness, those being the attribute of God's mercy and the attribute of God's grace. In Exodus 33:19, and he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. We understand mercy being that aspect where God demonstrates compassion towards the weak and brokenhearted. God's grace being that where God gives his favor towards the undeserving. This is all aspects of God's love. Like I said, they all inform one another. Next, we look at the love of God. I love the definition that Grudem gives to define love. He states this in his systematic that love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. Once again, we see this isn't an occasional act but an eternal truth about the character of God through which he acts in the lives of those with whom he grants his favor. We see this not only in the eternal Godhead, but also in the giving of himself to the utmost through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Any questions about that? Any comments about God's love? Yes, brother. Earlier you mentioned that... um God is the standard of all good, something like that. Um, I would think we are supposed to understand that it is not because the thing is, is good in itself that God, uh, God approves it. 
but because as you say god is the one who decides or determines what is good what is bad he's the is the standard mm -hmm. uh, i know in many churches we we look at the thing in itself and um say this is good this is bad but it is god who is the standard of all so that was very helpful thank you amen yeah we look at god's creative work right god created the God created uh, all the beasts of the field. He created the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day after he rested, he looked at everything he created and he said, it is very good. Right? His work is perfect. His work does not fail. Um, yeah. But when we look at the world, we see so much evil. We see so much sin. Yet it is true that what God said, that it is very good, and that remains that, right? We, 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 we stay with that, because that's, that's what God determines it is, and it is true. Yeah, that stems from his decree, right? He declared, declared all things before the foundation of the world from his good counsel, right? We see that in Ephesians. Uh, is there any other comments, questions? Yes, Awesome. Um, I find it fitting that if uh, God is God is love and we're created in his image and likeness that the most powerful thing we can do that he asks of us is to love him love our neighbors ourselves and now uh, in evangelism in Fordham last week I found that we have to reach out to lost sinners with love and the gospel and that's that's the way they'll see the Lord and his, his holiness so thank you for bringing that up God is love yeah, absolutely. Um, like I said, we, we can proclaim his love, you know, not the way the world wants to say it. They just say God is love. They like to take this book, as thick as it is, with its two testaments, it's, it's 66 books, it's 1180-something chapters, 400,000 words, and they say it means God is love. They say it means judge not. That's not what this book is. This book is all about Jesus Christ and about God's saving, redemptive work through Jesus Christ. And that's what we can proclaim because that's what he did. Yes, brother. There's nothing so wonderful as to experience the love of God. Of all life, there's nothing so wonderful as when the love of God is shed abroad in your heart. I can't say that enough. Amen. Sister Mercia. Um, we look at love as an emotional feeling or if we agree with someone or someone agree with us, um, we look at that as, as love. But when you think about what God says, no greater love than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. I thought of... Um, Wednesday night at Bible study when we were talking about the costs um, to follow Christ. And as I was thinking upon that, uh, even when I went home, um, just to see how what love does, because God loved us, he gave. Because God loved us, he died. And, you know, he gave of himself. And so when we think about God's love, is that we are giving up ourselves, we are giving ourselves away. 
Amen. And that falls right in line with that definition, right? God's love is God eternally giving of Himself to others. And He tells us to give of ourself to others. It's the exact same attribute. It's a communicable attribute. It's, a, it's an attribute that's eternally with God, yet God shares it with us. He allows us to contain that attribute, to act through that attribute, to have that within ourselves. We aren't going to be fully loved as God is, but God just gives us liberty to act out of love. Right? Anything else? Okay. Well, let's move on to holiness. This is a big one. We can see the holiness of God in two ways. We can understand it first in terms of His separation. The word holiness means literally to cut apart and set apart from the rest, from the whole. God is set apart from the entirety of His creation. He is completely unique. There is nothing that can claim equalness with God. He is truly over and above all things. We can also understand that the holiness of God in terms of His moral perfection. Since God is entirely pure and entirely good, He cannot sin and is incapable of falling into sin. He is completely set apart and separated from sin. Therefore, He is set apart from the entirety of His creation that has been corrupted by sin. The best biblical example we have of this comes from the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. Prophet Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord in the throne room, right? Surrounded by angels, surrounded by smoke. And they were covering themselves from the presence of the Lord. And we read this in Isaiah 6.3. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The significance of this verse being the threefold use of the word holy. This is important because in the Hebrew language, to repeat a word meant you were adding emphasis to the word. Right? In the song we sang today, The Refiner's Fire, we talk about the purest gold because it talks about purest gold in the Old Testament. There's no word for purest in the Old Testament. They just repeat the word gold. It's not gold, it's the goldest gold. So God isn't holy. He's holy, holy. He's the holiest of holies and He's the most holy of all the holiest of holies. It's the only word that's repeated three times in the Old Testament to give that much emphasis to something. And it's used to define this attribute of God. His holiness. His uniqueness. The way in which He's set apart and above and over all of us and everything. We see that repeated once again in the New Testament in Revelation. When John has his vision in the... In the in the heavenly kingdom, in Revelation 4.8, and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. This is a perfect quality of God. Now in His absolute perfection, I'm just get with you in one second, brother. In His absolute perfection, it's not a communicable attribute. But God does command us to be holy and set apart within this world. 
as we are his ambassadors, as we represent him in the world. Right? You look at the book of Leviticus. That book is a great holy book where he says, you will be my people and I will set you apart as my people and you will be a holy people dedicated to me. That entire book that a lot of people don't understand, they don't want to read it because it's just this book of laws. It's a book of laws that were given to the Israelites so that they would stand out from the world. That people would look at these people and say, those are God's people. There's no doubt about it, that's an Israelite. Because that's how they worship, that's how they regard God, that's how they live, that's how they breathe. Those are God's people, they are holy. Yes, brother. Uh, brother uh, Anthony, uh, i just like to share with you what John MacArthur said about uh, the seraphim when they cried out, holy, holy, holy. He said, with two wings, they covered her eyes, was a picture of their humility in the presence of holiness. And with two wings, they covered their feet, was a picture of their reverence for the holiness of the creator that they were uh, uh, proclaiming. And that the wing, the two other wings in the middle were their availability to be always ready to be on, on, the, on the ready whenever the, uh, God would so ordain. It so blessed my heart to, to show how John MacArthur had that understanding of the seraphim and, and their respect for the holiness of God. Amen. These, are, these were clearly unique creatures that were created for the specific purpose of worshiping God eternally, right? They, they do not cease day or not to cry, to cry out praises of worship and, and proclaim God's holiness. Did I see another hand up? No? Okay. Let's move on to God's righteousness. We ourselves would understand righteousness in terms of right or wrong. Romans 14, 7, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 2, 22, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with, these, with, I'm sorry, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Yet since we established already that it's God who define, defines right and wrong, that we don't understand that when we say that God is righteous, that he will only do and say and will those things which he, through his inherent nature, would already declare to be righteous. He is good. Therefore, he is, is his own standard of righteousness. Psalm 145, 7, They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness, and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. Further down, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. Everything God does, everything he says, everything he works out is done through his righteousness because he is good. He cannot do anything other than good. He cannot act in a non-good way. He cannot declare something that would be ungood. And by extension, we can also say that God is just through his righteousness. When God judges sin or wickedness or evil, or when God declares something to be good or right or righteous, we know that declaration will come from God, who himself is the highest and only true standard of goodness. If you want to see the significance of God's righteous, then I would point you towards the Ten Commandments. Right? When we see... 
you know, what we understand is the moral law of God, right? If, if you've done any study on it, see that a lot of us would understand there's a threefold giving of the law. There's the civil law that was given to the Israelites, as I said in Leviticus, to distinguish them from other people and other nations. There's the ceremonial law that was given to the Levitic priests, right? To determine how they would conduct worship in the house of God. Very specific laws. These are the laws that would determine whether or not the worship given to God would be acceptable to him. And then there was the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. We understand those things that reflect God's good nature and character that should be reflected in us. If you don't understand the difference, then I would point you to the fact that the civil law and the ceremonial law were delivered through the mouth of Moses on the ground, whereas the moral law of God was delivered on Mount Sinai. It was a mountain that was covered with fire and smoke, surrounded by trumpets and lightning and flashes. It was a mountain that was so holy that people couldn't look upon it under fear of death. Only Moses was allowed to approach that mountain. Only Moses was able to ascend that mountain. And God delivered that moral law on two tablets of stone that God wrote in his own hand. If you can't understand the difference between those laws, then I would ask you to go back and study. The moral law is significant. God's goodness is declared in a very different way from civil and ceremonial laws. God is good, and he will make sure that you know he is good. And he will make sure that you know and fear what happens if you are not good. Amen? Next we see jealousy. Grudem provides another great definition here where he says that regarding jealousy, that God's jealousy means that God continually seeks to protect his own honor. When we think of jealousy, we usually think about it negatively. We think about angry boyfriends or girlfriends. We think about envious co-workers. And we should see jealousy as a negative or a flaw in the character of men because the presence of jealousy in men stems from a desire of man to defend his own honor because he feels his pride is at stake. Yet when we see the quality in God, we don't have to regard it as a negative quality. In fact, we can be grateful and even take comfort in the Lord's jealousy. We can see through this study alone that God is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. So if anything comes that might seek to undermine him and compromise his honor or his integrity, then he is right and just and he does good to defend it. But I would ask, how can we be comforted by that fact? Anybody have an answer? Why would we be comforted by God's jealousy? Anyone at all? Yes, Paul. Oh, wait. Go ahead. I think I'd be very comforted because he'd be jealous about me. <laughs> and, and that, uh, in the sense that uh, because I become his property, because he bought me with his own precious blood. So therefore, if, uh, if he loved me so much that he uh, bore my sins in his own body upon the tree uh, to save me, then he's going to be jealous over me because he is, does not want me to be uh, ensnared by the adversary. I would say that's true, but how would that, how, when, when I ask that question, I mean, how is it good and we can be comforted by God defending his own honor? 
Well, okay, if I could just add uh, to, to that, because it goes right back to when he says, thou shalt not have any other gods before thee. In other words, God will not allow any competition. He will not allow any adversary to come between me, us, and him. He is zealous for his honor that uh, he will not, uh, as I just said, that he will not let any, uh, anything come between our soul and the Savior. Okay. Well, that's all true, but that's not the answer I was looking for. Well, it's the best I could do. No, no, that's, that's fair. <laughs> I understand. It's been a long day for all of us. But the verse I was thinking about was Numbers twenty three nineteen, where it says, God is not man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said, and will, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and he will not make it good? God is true in everything. He is, and he keeps his word. And you can feel comfort in knowing that when the world, and when men claim that God doesn't exist, or when they accuse him of being a liar, that it's his jealousy that will hold him, that will hold him to his promises. It's his jealousy that keeps him faithful to us. We can trust in his promises. We know he's faithful because he's a jealous God and he will defend his own honor and he will not allow anybody to call him a liar. Amen? Yes, brother. And every man a liar. Amen. Anything else? Okay. We see that in Nahum 1-2. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. We see it in the giving of the law, the moral law, Exodus 20. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven or above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. God makes no apologies for his jealousy. He will defend his honor. And as we saw in those verses, we also see him talk about his own wrath, which is the next attribute, which I think is the final attribute that we come to here. The wrath of God is that attribute which is characterized by his anger and hatred which is kindled against anything which itself is or which acts contrary to or in opposition of God's goodness. Psalm 5, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor no evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Exodus 34. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. But as an aspect of God's wrath, as I mentioned 
near the beginning of this study, that phrase, slow to anger, is the phrase that we often translate as patient. At every instance where God restrains himself from acting and carrying out his righteous retribution upon those who are deserving of his wrath, namely every single human being alive at this moment in time, he is demonstrating his patience. He is patient in dealing with his children who love him yet fall into sin, and he is patient in exacting his vengeance against the unrepentant sinners of this world until the time that he is appointed has come in which he will judge all wickedness. Nahum 1.3, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, in whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. Do I have any questions before we get to the conclusion? No? Okay. So, I have three questions that I want us to consider as we conclude our study. How should we reflect on God's moral attributes? What should we consider regarding God's moral attributes as they are reflected in us? And what hope is found through God's moral qualities? I was doing a lot of reading, and there was a passage that I read by J.I. Packer that I thought put it in pretty good terms. He said, Our aim in studying the Godhead must be to know God himself better. Our concern must be to enlarge our acquaintance, not simply with the doctrine of God's attributes, but with the living God whose attributes they are. As he is the subject of our study and our helper in it, so he must himself be the end of it. We must seek in studying God to be led to God. It was for this purpose that revelation was given, and it is to this use that we must put it. How are we to do this? How can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is demanding but simple. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. We see these words uh, reflected in the Bible and Scripture. Psalm 145, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works... I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. Psalm 27, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And finally, in Psalm 25, do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your loving kindness. Remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. We have any final questions or comments before we close in prayer? Yes, sister. Can you go over uh, the definition of God's jealousy again? Yes. Uh, let me get to it so that I don't mess it up, which is a tendency I have. Ah, where'd it go? Jealousy, we understand, means that God continually seeks to protect his own honor. 
he will defend it. God proclaims throughout his entire word that he is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And anything that contradicts that, anything that comes in conflict with that, or anything that attacks that, God will defend with his utmost, with his absolute wrath and jealousy. Anything else? Does that answer your question? Okay. Any other questions, comments? No? Okay. Paul, so good to have you back. Tony, can you give him the mic? Would you be able to close us in prayer, please? Thank you. Before I pray, it's good to be back. <laughs> Amen. But uh, this morning, there were different times where that old thing came coming back. But in time, I know the Lord will restore me. But thank you all for your prayers. Almighty and eternal God. What a joy it is to study the attributes of God, to know more about Thee. For to know more about Thee is life itself. Thank you for Brother Anthony and for the good message that he brought in his teaching today. And our Father, as we learn the more of the wonderful attributes of God, the way of God, and the honor of God, we can only be thankful for every trial he brings our way. For thy word says that everything is working together for good to those who love you, even those trials, that we might be better conformed to the image of thy well-beloved Son. Because that's why you save us, that we might become like Jesus. And so, our Father, this has been a good day today, a good day of preaching, a good day of teaching, a good day of fellowship. And we just thank you. This is the Lord's day, a day to praise our God and to just enjoy thee forever. So as we go our separate way, may the grace of our Lord Jesus and the love of God the Father and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit go with us now and forever. Amen. 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 Thank you, guys. Have a blessed week. Thank you.